Well, it's been a joy to to be with y'all. Um, I I don't I can't really say y'all yet. I just have to say you guys, like a like a classic Northwesterner. Um, but it really has been a, a joy this weekend, and I'm really happy to to bring the word to you guys. So, open your Bibles to Genesis 42. We're going to be in Genesis 42 through most of Genesis 45. Uh, turn your Bibles there. We're going to be in a, a big story, but uh, I want to tell you a, uh, a short story to begin with. And that story begins in 1913 with a man named Igor Sikorsky who built an airplane. Now, Sikorsky built his airplane with some features that were puzzling to his contemporaries. For example... Sikorsky, at the last minute, decided to design his plane with wings that were long and narrow. And, you know, maybe that doesn't mean anything to us, but it was surprising at the time because most airplane wings were short and wide. People thought, what is he doing? Now, now get this, Sikorsky also built his airplane with a balcony on the front. Can you imagine that? Uh, a couple hundred feet up in the air on a balcony in front of an airplane with, like, the wind just, just like, pummeling you. I can't, I don't know why that, was a, why that was a good feature for his plane. But that was not the most puzzling feature of his plane. The most puzzling feature of Sikorsky's plane was its two engines. There were two of them. He had the insane idea of building an airplane with dual engines, and nobody thought this would work. No one could conceive of, of successfully synchronizing two engines so that they would work together to be able to fly a plane. And so they thought Sikorsky was insane. Until on May 10th, 1913, when Sikorsky himself ran the first test flight, and it worked. Now, the other thing about Sikorsky's plane that I didn't tell you is that it had room for multiple passengers. It was the first passenger plane ever built. So get this, all of us who have flown on, in a passenger plane owe a debt of gratitude to this man who everybody thought was crazy. And it all started with the insane idea of synchronizing two engines together. While someone has said that there are two engines synchronized together in the Joseph narrative as well. And what we will see today in this story is that, like, like Sikorsky's dual engine plane, two causal engines are at work. The two engines are the horizontal and the vertical, the human and the divine. And, and I know since we're, we're diving into the middle of the story, I, I need to get you up to speed on where we've come from. And thankfully, I think this story is pretty familiar to us, so we kind of know the highlights. And as I just walk through the, the highlights of the story, I want you to start to see how these two engines have been working throughout this narrative. 
So the first movement of this story about Joseph takes place in chapters 37 and 38. And in this part, we see explicitly the horizontal engine, the human side of this dual causality. In chapter 37, Joseph's seemingly boastful announcement of his dreams cause a rift in his family. And then his brothers act violently against him, which plunges their father, Jacob, into inconsolable grief. I'm going to read a couple passages uh, as we review. Genesis 37, 18. Uh, the, the brothers, they saw him from afar. They saw Joseph from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Human, horizontal, they act against Joseph. And the Ishmaelites act in carting Joseph off to Egypt and now he's away from his father. And that's just chapter 37. In chapter 38, Judah acts in leaving his father's house behind and marrying a foreigner. And, and Tamar, his son's wife, acts to entrap Judah, which brings about Judah's repentance. Genesis 38, 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. She acted, and it brought about Judah's repentance. So we see again the horizontal happening. And in the first part of the story, though, God is almost entirely absent, at least explicitly. But the second movement takes place in chapters 39 through 41. And, and as we watch Joseph in Egypt navigate adversity after adversity, the vertical becomes increasingly more explicit. The narrator tells us at the outset of chapter 39 that, that Yahweh was with Joseph. Yahweh was with him in Potiphar's house. Chapter 39, Yahweh was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And Yahweh was with Joseph in the prison, even after being unjustly framed. Genesis thirty-nine twenty-one. But the Lord, but Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God is so evidently with Joseph as he, after this, rises to second in command in Egypt in spite of all the setbacks. And Joseph himself speaks of the, the vertical reality, the vertical engine too. He, he tells the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and even Pharaoh that God is the one who gives the interpretations of their dreams. And so we see vertical. And yet we also see the horizontal engine. Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce Joseph 
and her deception causes his imprisonment. The chief cupbearer, his forgetfulness after being released by Pharaoh leads to two more years of seemingly hopeless imprisonment for Joseph. And Joseph's intentional, wise actions in response to Pharaoh's dreams and their meaning save Egypt from starvation. And so you see the the interplay between the horizontal and the vertical, the two causal engines at work in this narrative. Both engines in perfect God-ordained synchronization propel this narrative forward like the engines on Sikorsky's plane. And so with this reality in mind, we come to the third movement of the Joseph narrative. And we recognize that man's actions move this story along. But God is at work, weaving together the complex of human action to achieve his great purposes. But before we start looking at our portion of the narrative, I just want to talk to you, and I want you to understand where the entire story of Genesis is heading. Because this overarching goal, the goal that that Moses, the author of Genesis, has in this book, orients us to what the narrator is doing here. And the overarching goal of Genesis can be summarized in one word. And that word is seed. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, and I think you'll recognize this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, right after the fall, Right after God curses Adam, Eve, and the serpent, he makes a promise. He promises that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this enmity will come to a head when the one seed, the the he that God speaks of, will deliver a death blow to the serpent, although his heel will be bruised in the process. You might ask, what does this have to do with Jacob and his wives and Joseph and his other 11 brothers? Everything. Because at the outset of the Bible's storyline, we begin to anticipate this seed. This seed who will undo the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon the world. And as we watch the narrator trace this seed through Genesis... He traces it all the way down from Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham to Isaac and in our story to Jacob. And the question at the forefront of the original audience's mind, and we need to understand this, the question on their minds when they heard over and over again the phrase, these are the generations, these are the generations, these are the generations, is this. Who is going to be the one who will advance the promise? Who is going to be the one to carry on God's plan? And how will Yahweh advance and sustain his precious and very great promises to his people? And so when we reach Genesis 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. That's what we're wondering about. With Jacob his 12 sons. And yet, the Joseph narrative 
confronts us with significant hindrances to the promise of the seed because the family is tearing themselves apart. And, and in our portion of the narrative, Joseph is in Egypt. He's away from his family. And that's a problem. The family must be together for the blessing to continue. And so I'm just going to help you by summarizing the Joseph narrative in four words. Okay, these are four words to summarize what's happening in the Joseph narrative. And and the words are these. Promise jeopardized and promise advanced. At the beginning of the narrative and all throughout the narrative, the promise, the promise of the seed is jeopardized over and over and over again. And yet, in God's amazing sovereignty, at the end of the narrative, the promise is advanced. And that's the story of Genesis and the story of Joseph. And so we come to chapter 42, the point on which the whole narrative hinges, this this part of the story that we're in, the great climax of the Joseph story. I've titled the sermon, There and Back Again, for all of you Lord of the Rings fans. Uh, But because, I titled it that because Jacob's sons embark on a journey from Canaan to Egypt, there and back again. And on this journey, everything begins to change. So let's begin by looking at their first journey there and back again. The first verse brings us back to Canaan for the first time since chapter 37. We've been in Egypt for the last three chapters. And in the first four verses of chapter 42, the situation radically shifts because now the brothers are going down to Egypt and we know something they don't. Joseph is there. The narrator foreshadows this in verse 3. Notice, notice what the narrator calls the Jacob's sons. He doesn't call them Jacob's sons. He calls them Joseph's brothers. Because even though they don't know it yet, in traveling to Egypt, they will assume that role once again. And don't miss verse 2 because it's important too. Why does Jacob tell them to go to Egypt? He says, that we may live and not die. Do you see what's at stake? I mean, consider, consider the crisis in which we find God's chosen family. Remember, there's a famine all throughout the land, a famine so desperate and so deadly that Jacob says their lives hang in the balance. I mean, let me just remind you, if, if Jacob and his sons perish, the entire promise perishes with them. And this tension pervades the entire narrative. How will God fulfill his promises? How will he provide a seed in the midst of all these setbacks? How will the promise jeopardized become the promise advanced? Well, for the the first time in the narrative, after years of inconsolable grief for his beloved son, Jacob takes action and leads the family forward. He tells his sons, go to Canaan, buy us food, so that we may live and not die. And in verse 5, we find the brothers in Egypt. What is the first thing they do? They bow down to Joseph. You have to understand this, that the word that the author uses 
for bow down, for bow before, is the same word that Joseph uses when he describes his dreams to his brothers in chapter 37. What we're starting to see is the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. The text then says, verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. All right, now I just want you to, to slow down, and I want to show you what the author's doing here, okay? And I'm gonna, we're going to have to track through some text. So all the way back in Genesis 37, you'll remember this. When the brothers bring Joseph's robe to Jacob, they say, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And in chapter 38, when Tamar exposes Judah for the, for the wicked man he was, she says to him, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And here, in chapter 42, the narrator says that Joseph identified his brothers, but they did not identify him. It's the same word. Why is this significant? Think about this. When we, when we hear this word on the brother's lips in chapter 37, they deceive Jacob. They crush him. And Joseph is, is carted off to Egypt, away from the family, away from the blessing. The tables are turned. When we hear this word on, on Tamar's lips in chapter 38, she's irrefutably exposing Judah for the wicked man he was. And he repents. Tables turned. When we see this word in chapter 42, Joseph is now the one deceiving his brothers. Tables turned. And you can think about words like this that the narrator uses throughout the narrative as something like a, a, a fulcrum on which the entire story turns. Every time we see it, we know that something big is happening. And something massive happens in verse 9 because Joseph remembers his dreams. And doesn't this just reveal to us how amazingly intentional the biblical author is and, and ultimately how in, amazingly intentional the divine author is, this is amazing. The narrator beckons us not to, not to miss the significance of what's happening right here in the story because everything is starting to change. And it drives us on to the, to the, to the, uh, the developing action of the story. And in verses 10 through 17, Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. And then he provides this, this test that they might prove otherwise. He, he puts them in prison for three days. But why would he do this? Notice that in verse 9, we're, we're told, I said this, we're told that he remembers his dreams. So, so have they been fulfilled? But what did his dreams prophesy? If you go back to 37, the dreams prophesied that the first dream prophesied that all, all the brothers, all 11 of them would bow down to him. But one of the brothers is not with them. Benjamin must be there too. 
for the dreams to be fulfilled. So that's one concern. But Joseph is not only concerned about his dreams. I mean, think about this. Remember, the last time he was with his brothers, they, they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. They were about to kill him. He has no reason to trust them. He doesn't know what, what's happened in the last 20 years. He has no reason to believe them when they say, we are honest men. They're, they're not honest men in Joseph's eyes. And so what we will begin to see is that Joseph forces his brothers to relive their past. He puts them into situations that cause them to reflect on their guilt, and the tension increases at every point along the way. And so the third scene starts in verse 18 of chapter 42. After three days, Joseph releases all the brothers except Simeon. He changes the story on them. He commands the nine to return to Canaan to deliver grain to their household and to come back with Benjamin. Verse 20, so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. As this scene unfolds, the brothers begin to talk amongst themselves. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you, to not, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The, bro- the brothers begin to reflect on, on what has just happened to them this episode in Egypt that they were totally blindsided by, and they are distressed. And this distress causes them to reflect on somebody else's distress. A nagging guilt pulls their minds back to an event that happened 20 years ago. We learn something here that the narrator did not tell us in Genesis 37. When the brothers threw Joseph into the pit, he was not silent. He was distressed. He was severely afflicted, of course. And he begged them. He begged his brothers to let him go. He pleaded for mercy, and they did not listen. Oh, how his words must have reverberated in their minds at this moment. The narrator brings us, you see what he's doing? He he brings us face to face with this personal account of the brother's severity towards Joseph. And because of that, we we feel with them the burden of grief that they've been bearing all these years. A grief that Joseph's test is beginning to bring to the surface. So far in chapter 42, we might be wondering, what is going on with Joseph? Joseph. Why does he treat his brothers so poorly? And we just have to remember that that Joseph himself is a real person with complex human emotions. And while we're not told all the reasons explicitly why he does this, the narrator does give us insight into Joseph's emotions at different points. And in verse 23, the narrator tells us, they did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then 
he turned away from them and wept. See, clearly Joseph has more in his mind than just retribution. His tears foreshadow the possibility of reconciliation because already he is overwhelmed with grief at the brothers' admission of their guilt. In verse 25, we enter into the fourth scene of this first journey. The brothers, now only nine of them, journey back to Canaan. But something mysterious happens on their way home. Verse 27. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, What is this that God has done to us? They're terrified. They didn't know what to think. Their hearts, the text says their hearts literally went out from them. They had no category for understanding why in the world money would have been put back in their sacks of grain. And one commentator points out, and think about this, because of everything that has just happened to him, to them, the brothers can only interpret all of these things in the worst ways. They, they see it as judgment. They see it as, as another situation that, that brings their guilt to the surface. And once again, we see the dual engines churning. For it's clearly Joseph who returned the money. And yet the brothers say, verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? And now they go to face their father again. And this leads us to the last scene of chapter 42 as the brothers return to Jacob, their father. And they, they carefully recount the events that have transpired and they break, they break the news to their father very carefully that they must bring Benjamin back with them But then in verse 35, they begin to empty their sacks again. And we get this kind of confusing rediscovery of the money. Verse 35, and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Well, didn't the narrator already tell us about this? Why why repeat it again as as if the brothers are discovering this money for the first time? But, but notice this, there's a subtle difference in language here that helps us understand what the narrator is doing and what's happening. Because the first time that the text simply says that their hearts failed them and they trembled. They were afraid. They didn't know what to think. But look at verse 35 again. It says, and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. The difference now is not the discovery, but the one who discovers the money with them. And now think about this. The last time the brothers went on a long journey in chapter 37 to Dothan to to shepherd their sheep, they leave as 12 brothers. Jacob sends Joseph uh, to kind of catch up with them and to report. So all 12 brothers go. 
they return to Jacob. Only 11 with a sack of money in their hands. Remember, they sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. And now they return to Canaan, short another brother with what? Sacks of money in their hands. Jacob's words in response must have felt like the stab of a knife blade. Verse 36, and Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Jacob isn't blindsided like he was in chapter 37. The events of their journey begin to raise Jacob's suspicions that that maybe his sons are the ones responsible for causing his grief. Just maybe. After all, this is the second time that they've returned flush with cash and short a brother. Reuben makes a desperate attempt to, to convince his father to let Benjamin go. Verse 37, he says, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. Now, if we look at, verse, or if we look at chapter 37, this is, this is exactly what Reuben keeps trying to do. He tries to to lead the family forward as the oldest son, but his actions are rash and ill-fated. And Jacob doubles down. Verse 38, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Maybe the brothers, maybe they winced at those words. He is the only one left. Because Benjamin is certainly not the only remaining son. There are ten other brothers. But Jacob only sees Joseph and Benjamin. And the narrative comes to a screeching halt. The brothers are overshadowed by guilt because of their past. And they find themselves reliving it over and over again. And The father, broken by grief, is unwilling to let his beloved son go. This is the first of two journeys to Egypt. Now, let's look at the second. Chapter 43. I want you to notice something here. On this second journey, time starts to slow down as as the tension begins to rise and as the narrative gets closer to to the high point. It slows down. The narrator focuses in on the actions that are happening here. In the first scene of this journey, we're still in Canaan. Time passes. Jacob's family runs out of the grain. And so he says to his sons, verse 2, go again, buy us a little food. And this time, Judah responds. He recounts the man's solemn words and the solemn warning that if Benjamin wasn't with them, they could not go down. And then Judah says this, verse 8. Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. 
both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. I want to draw your attention to just two things in this short speech. First, notice how Judah talks like Jacob, his father. He says that we may live and not die. This is exactly what Jacob said in 42, verse 2. See, Judah is concerned for the survival of the family and thus the survival of the promise. Think about this. He's leading the family forward. He reminds his father of the importance of preserving the line. And this is the only way the promise could ever be advanced. And so we wonder, could Judah be the one? Could he be the one to to carry the promise forward to advance the line of the seed? Second, notice that Judah, unlike Reuben, risks his own neck for Benjamin. Reuben says, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. I mean, why in the world would Jacob ever want to kill his grandsons? Judah says, from my hand you shall require him. Let me bear the blame forever. He becomes the the pledge of Benjamin's safety. and, And in this commitment, we continue to see, like we saw, like like. You can see at the end of 38 that Judah is a changed man. After he repents of his sin against Tamar, he's a changed man. He is righteous. So reluctantly, Jacob sends the brothers. He sends them with a gift from this Egyptian for this Egyptian ruler. And we come to scene two, which begins in verse 15 of chapter 43. The brothers arrive in Egypt again. And when they arrive, their distress increases as they're commanded to come to Joseph's house. They, they hurry to speak with the steward because they're, they're afraid that they'll be framed for stealing this money that was returned to them. But instead of framing them, the steward says this, verse 23, he says, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. And again, we see the dual engines of human action and divine providence, even from the mouth of a foreigner. And so the brothers, likely a bit relieved at this point, prepare the present that Jacob sent with them. And scene three begins in verse 26, as Joseph arrives at his house. And the brothers bring bring the present to Joseph, and they, what do they do? They they bow themselves to the ground before him. The narrator tells us twice in verse 26 and 28 that the brothers bowed down to Joseph again. And this time, it was all of them. See, God is working. He fulfilled Joseph's dream. And in verse 29, Joseph sees Benjamin and speaks with his brothers about him. Look at, look at verse 30. It says, then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. 
compassion wells up in the heart of Joseph, stronger now, and he once again is brought to tears, but he's able to control himself. He continues the test, and the suspense increases. Verse 31, Then he, Joseph, washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. And the brothers eat with Joseph, and, and they stand amazed. What's going on? But the narrator thrusts us into the next scene. Look at chapter 44. We're we're inching towards the climax, and we feel the tension increase. Joseph returns the brother's money like before, but this time he tells his steward to put his silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And we have we may have become like we, we may have started to wonder. If, if Joseph was going to reveal himself to his brothers at the feast, but then he doesn't. He keeps testing them. And the suspense increases as we watch Joseph's plan, his next scheme, unfold before our eyes. He sends the brothers on their way only, only to send his steward to confront them for theft. The brothers, they, I mean, they can't really argue against such a, a powerful ruler. So the steward searches each of the brothers' sacks from the oldest to the youngest. And the worst thing happens. He finds the cup in the sack of Benjamin. In sorrow, the brothers tear their garments and return to Egypt. This is the worst possible reality And in verse 14, Judah's brothers appear before Joseph for a third time. Now, two observations here. Two observations. First, first, notice what Judah says to Joseph. Verse 16, Judah says, "What, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What's what's Judah talking about? I mean, surely he doesn't think that Benjamin actually stole the cup. But, but look at this. Judah, Judah is not confessing to stealing the cup. He's confessing a deeper guilt to Joseph, one that has been gnawing at his conscience and at his brother's consciences for decades now. And that guilt is being exposed. Again, we see the brothers forced to relive past events. The second observation, notice the position that Joseph now puts his brothers in. When Judah declares that, that all the brothers will be Joseph's servants, he says, he says, let us all be your servants. We'll all be your servants. Joseph retorts, verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, As for you, go up in peace to your father. And if anything causes them to relive their past, it's this moment right here. Think about, think about the decision that they can make in this moment. They can choose to abandon their father's beloved son to slavery for their own personal benefit. Has that happened before? It has. 20 years ago. And so we reach the pinnacle moment of the Joseph story in verse 18 as Judah goes before Joseph because we wonder what is going to happen. 
Joseph wonders, what are they going to do? Are they going to do the same thing they did 20 years ago? Or have they changed? Verse 18. I'm going to read this whole speech, so listen. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When he went back to your servant, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless your youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah recounts all that has taken place since their first journey to Egypt. But this is more than a simple recounting of past events. He gives a, a persuasive speech. He, he directly quotes Joseph he quotes his father and the brothers, all in an effort to convince this Egyptian ruler to have mercy on him. Little does he know, the Egyptian ruler is his brother. And so Judah's speech affects Joseph in ways he could never have imagined. Twenty years earlier, Judah, Judah, sold his brother into slavery to rid his family of the one his father loved. And now, 20 years after that, Judah lays down his life. He offers himself as a slave to rescue the brother his father loves. Judah's speech proves that the brothers have undergone a complete transformation with Judah at the helm. Now just pause and consider this for a moment. Judah's 
willingness to lay down his life for Benjamin should strike us. And here we see another aspect of the seed promise. Because as we trace the line of the seed down through the generations, we catch glorious glimpses of what the seed will one day do. The ultimate seed is the one who lays down his life for those who would trust in him for salvation. It's Jesus Christ. And in exemplifying the highest form of love, laying down his life for his brother, Judah looks like the seed. And we see here that the seed promise is being advanced because the brothers have changed and now reconciliation between them is something we can actually hope for. Now look with me at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? For the third time, Joseph wells up with compassionate tears, but but this time he cannot hold them back. His emotions provoked by Judah's speech bring him to a breaking point. And the suspense that's been building surrounding Joseph's true identity is resolved with two Hebrew words. Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. Judah's speech both proves to Joseph that they have changed and it compels him to end this test. What was not known is known Joseph's identity, that that missing piece of the puzzle to the brother's reconciliation is finally out in the open. Joseph says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Joseph's words express his love for his dear old father, but his brothers are too stunned to speak. And Joseph brings his brothers near to him. Verse 4, he says, come near to me, please. And he declares to them his understanding of what has happened. Joseph shows great compassion to his brothers. He tells them in verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He tells them of the famine that is still to, to come, and God's purpose in bringing Joseph down to Egypt, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now, did you catch those two words? Remnant? Survivors? There has to be a remnant. There have to be survivors for God's promise to continue. And this is exactly why Joseph speaks of God's providence. And Joseph sends them to gather their families and most importantly, their father. Verse 13, you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Joseph finishes his speech and breaking down again, weeps on the neck of his brother Benjamin. And for the first time in 20 years, he talks with his brothers. And then, 
in verses 16 through 28, Joseph, with the support of Pharaoh, send his brothers back to Canaan to gather up Jacob and all his seed to bring them down to Egypt. In this climactic scene, there are, I just want to draw out two points of application. Because if you go back to chapter 38, Judah repents of his wrongs when confronted by Tamar. And if you read that story, you, you watch as Judah repents of his wrongs, and you see him do that, and we're pressed by the narrator to repent like Judah repented when sin is confronted. And here in chapter 44 and 45, Judah, the man who repented, now demonstrates the brother's complete moral transformation. And and this brings Joseph to a place where he is ready to forgive. In the moments after Judah's speech, Joseph completely forgives his brothers of their sin against him. And as we hear this speech from Joseph's perspective, because we know what's going on, we know that it's Joseph. The narrator presses us to do what? He presses us to forgive like Joseph forgave. To forgive like Joseph forgave. And so I, I, I just ask you, have you forgiven those who have wronged you? When is it the most difficult for you to let go of an offense Will you learn from the example of Joseph? Think of all the ways that he was sinned against. Or will you harden your heart and refuse to forgive those who have hurt you? Do you see, do you see that the most pressing lessons or applications that the narrator actually draws out for us in the course of this narrative stand at the center of the gospel that we believe? Repent of your wrongs in chapter 38. And now here, forgive others of their wrongs against you. If you will not forgive, then you are, are not aligned with the promise of the seed. You are not aligned with that promise and you don't inherit its blessings. Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We know we are the greater sinners against God. And if we know that, then how can we not forgive? See, Joseph Joseph viewed his life. He he was able to forgive his brothers because he viewed his life from another plane than just the horizontal. He did not see his brothers as agents of his suffering anymore. He saw them as agents of divine providence. And this is our second point of application. The truth of divine providence and the call to trust in it. And here we come full circle. Back to our first discussion about the two engines that are working in this story. 
We see the engine of human responsibility. But we also see that as the narrative presses us toward the climax, a shift begins to occur. We start to see the engine of divine providence. And now in chapter 45, from the mouth of Joseph himself, divine providence is not just sensed, he proclaims it. He declares it as the overarching truth of this entire narrative that frames all of the events and all of the sins and all of the destruction that have come to pass in his life. Look at verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you see the two engines at work? Joseph tells the brothers that they sold him into slavery. But he also tells them that God sent him there. The horizontal and the vertical synchronize in the most mysterious way. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. The truth that Joseph proclaims to his brothers is a truth that you desperately need to hold on to. And it is this, that, that God's providence means that he is at work in every human action to accomplish his purpose. As Joseph perceives the transformation that has occurred in his brothers, as he reflects on his understanding of God's purpose for bringing him to Egypt, he is overwhelmed by the goodness of Yahweh and the glory of his plan. Because it is through all of these events that God preserves the seed. And so, my question, in light of all this, is, will you trust him? Will you trust him when life goes against your expectations? See, we have the privilege of looking back at stories like this and seeing all the twists and turns from the perspective of the end. And this is the beauty of the stories that God has given us. And so you can say with Joseph, in any circumstance, God is doing this. He is at work in my life. In the, the everyday frustrations of life and in the massive unexpected, unanticipated trials and everything in between, God is at work. You might not have the clarity that Joseph has here in this scene, but you can be confident that no matter what goes wrong in your life, God is at work as one who has trusted in the seed, in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ you can say God is working through this. You can say what great hymn writers declare in, in an amazing song, Oh, grant me wisdom from above to pray for peace and cling to love and teach me humbly 
to receive the sun and rain of your sovereignty. Each strand of sorrow has a place within this tapestry of grace. So through the trials, I choose to say your perfect will in your perfect way. Let me pray for you as as we close. Oh, great God, sovereign Lord, we see the glory of your meticulous providence in stories like this, and we are so thankful. And I pray for these people that you would strengthen them to trust in you. That you would strengthen them to trust in you when life goes against their expectations and their hopes and their dreams. I pray that you would strengthen them to believe that you are at work. And I pray that they would trust just like Joseph and Judah trusted in your promise. Lord, we've seen that promise come to fruition in the life and the death and in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ who died a substitutionary death, who paid for our sins, who rose again, defeating death and sin, and who offers us new life, forgiveness of sins, and hope forever in Him. He is the ultimate seed. He is the one that we hope for. He is the one that the prophets long to see, and I pray that our hope would be in Him. And that we would say through every trial, your perfect will and your perfect way. In Christ's name.